Section 33 of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Of Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontent, Part 6. An exterior administration chosen for its impotency, or after it is chosen purposely rendered impotent, in order to be rendered subservient, will not be obeyed. The laws themselves will not be respected, when those who execute them are despised, and they will be despised when their power is not immediate from the crown, or natural in the kingdom. Never were ministers better supported in Parliament. Parliamentary support comes and goes with office, totally regardless of the man or the merit. Is government strengthened? It grows weaker and weaker. The popular torrent gains upon it every hour. Let us learn from our experience. It is not support that is wanting to government, but reformation. When ministry rests upon public opinion, it is not indeed built upon a rock of adamant. It is, however, some stability. But when it stands upon private humour, its structure is of stubble, and its foundation is on quicksand. I repeat it again, he that supports every administration subverts all government. The reason is this, the whole business in which a court usually takes an interest goes on at present equally well. In whatever hands, whether high or low, wise or foolish, scandalous or reputable there is nothing therefore to hold it firm to any one body of men or to any one consistent scheme of politics nothing interposes to prevent the full operation of all the caprices and all the passions of a court upon the servants of the public the system of administration is open to continual shocks and changes upon the principles of the meanest cabal and the most contemptible intrigue Nothing can be solid and permanent. All good men at length fly with horror from such a service. Men of rank and ability, with the spirit which ought to animate such men in a free state, while they decline the jurisdiction of dark cabal on their actions and their fortunes, will, for both, cheerfully put themselves upon their country. They will trust an inquisitive and distinguishing parliament, because it does inquire and does distinguish. If they act well, they know that in such a parliament they will be supported against any intrigue. If they act ill, they know that no intrigue can protect them. This situation, however awful, is honourable. But in one hour, and in the self-same assembly, without any assigned or assignable cause, to be precipitated from the highest authority, to the most marked neglect, possibly into the greatest peril of life and reputation, is a situation full of danger and destitute of honour. It will be shunned equally by every man of prudence and every man of spirit. Such are the consequences of the division of court from the administration and of the division of public men among themselves. By the former of these lawful government is undone, by the latter, 
all opposition to lawless power is rendered impotent. Government may in a great measure be restored, if any considerable bodies of men have honesty and resolution enough never to accept administration, unless this garrison of king's men, which is stationed as in a citadel, to control and enslave it, be entirely broken and disbanded, and every work they have thrown up be levelled with the ground. The disposition of public men to keep this corps together, and to act under it, or to cooperate with it, is a touchstone by which every administration ought in future to be tried. There has not been one which has not sufficiently experienced the utter incompatibility of that faction with the public peace, and with all the ends of good government, since if they opposed it, they soon lost every power of serving the crown. If they submitted to it, they lost all the esteem of their country. Until ministers give to the public a full proof of their entire alienation from that system, however plausible their pretenses, we may be sure they are more intent on the emoluments than the duties of office. If they refuse to give this proof, we know of what stuff they are made. In this particular, it ought to be the electors' business to look to their representatives. The electors ought to esteem it no less culpable in their member to give a single vote in Parliament to such an administration than to take an office under it, to endure it than to act in it. The notorious infidelity and versatility of members of Parliament in their opinions of men and things ought in a particular manner to be considered by the electors in the inquiry which is recommended to them. This is one of the principal holdings of that destructive system, which has endeavoured to unhinge all the virtuous, honourable and useful connections in the kingdom. This cabal has, with great success, propagated a doctrine which serves for a colour to those acts of treachery, and whilst it receives any degree of countenance, it will be utterly senseless to look for a vigorous opposition to the court party. The doctrine is this, that all political connections are in their nature factious, and as such ought to be dissipated and destroyed, and that the rule for forming administrations is more personal ability, rated by the judgment of this cabal upon it, and taken by drafts from every division and denomination of public men. This decree was solemnly promulgated by the head of the court corps, the Earl of Bute himself, in a speech which he made in the year 1766, against the then administration, the only administration which he has ever been known directly and publicly to oppose. It is indeed in no way wonderful that such persons should make such declarations, that connection and faction are equivalent terms, is an opinion which has been carefully inculcated at all times by unconstitutional statesmen. The reason is evident. Whilst men are linked together, they easily and speedily communicate the alarm of any evil design. They are enabled to fathom it with common counsel, and to oppose it with united strength. Whereas when they lie dispersed without concert, order or discipline, communication is uncertain, counsel difficult, 
and resistance impracticable. Where men are not acquainted with each other's principles, nor experienced in each other's talents, nor at all practised in their mutual habitudes and dispositions by joint efforts in business, no personal confidence, no friendship, no common interest subsisting among them, it is evidently impossible that they can act a public part with uniformity, perseverance or efficacy. In a connection the most inconsiderable man, by adding to the weight of the whole, has his value and his use. Out of it, the greatest talents are wholly unserviceable to the public. No man who is not inflamed by vainglory into enthusiasm can flatter himself that his single, unsupported, desultory, unsystematic endeavours are of power to defeat the subtle designs and united cabals of ambitious citizens. When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall, one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. It is not enough in a situation of trust in the Commonwealth that a man means well to his country. It is not enough that in his single person he never did an evil act, but always voted according to his conscience, and even harangued against every design which he apprehended to be prejudicial to the interests of his country. This innoxious and ineffectual character, that seems formed upon a plan of apology and disculpation, falls miserably short of the mark of public duty. That duty demands and requires that what is right should not only be made known, but made prevalent, that what is evil should not only be detected, but defeated. When the public man omits to put himself in a situation of doing his duty with effect, it is an omission that frustrates the purpose of his trust almost as much as if he had formally betrayed it. It is surely no very rational account of a man's life that he has always acted right, but has taken special care to act in such a manner that his endeavours could not possibly be productive of any consequence. I do not wonder that the behaviour of many parties should have made persons of tender and scrupulous virtue somewhat out of humour with all sorts of connection in politics. I admit that people frequently acquire in such confederacies a narrow, bigoted and prescriptive spirit, that they are apt to sink the idea of the general good in this circumscribed and partial interest. But where duty renders a critical situation a necessary one, it is our business to keep free from the evils attendant upon it, and not to fly from the situation itself. If a fortress is seated in an unwholesome air, an officer of the garrison is obliged to be attentive to his health, but he must not desert his station. Every profession, not excepting the glorious one of a soldier, or the sacred one of a priest, is liable to its own particular vices, which, however, form no argument against those ways of life, nor are the vices themselves inevitable to every individual in those professions. Of such a nature are connections in politics, essentially necessary for the full performance of our public duty, accidentally liable to degenerate into faction. Commonwealths are made of families. 
free commonwealths of parties also, and we may as well affirm that our natural regards and ties of blood tend inevitably to make men bad citizens, as that the bonds of our party weaken those by which we are held to our country. Some legislators went so far as to make neutrality in party a crime against the state. I do not know whether this might not have been rather to overstrain the principle. Certain it is, the best patriots in the greatest commonwealths have always commended and promoted such connections. Idem sentiri de Republica was with them a principal ground of friendship and attachment. Nor do I know any other capable of forming firmer, dearer, more pleasing, more honourable, and more virtuous habitudes. The Romans carried this principle a great way. Even the holding of offices together, the disposition of which arose from chance, not selection, gave rise to a relation which continued for life. It was called Necessitudo Sortis, and it was looked upon with a sacred reverence. Breaches of any of these kinds of civil relation were considered as acts of the most distinguished turpitude. The whole people was distributed into political societies, in which they acted in support of such interests, in the state as they severally affected. For it was then thought no crime to endeavour, by every honest means to advance to superiority and power, those of your own sentiments and opinions. This wise people was far from imagining that those connections had no tie, and obliged to no duty, but that men might quit them without shame, upon every call of interest. They believed private honour to be the great foundation of public trust. That friendship was no mean step towards patriotism, that he who, in the common intercourse of life, showed he regarded somebody besides himself, when he came to act in a public situation, might probably consult some other interest than his own. Never may we become plus sargus cala sargus, as the French comedian has happily expressed it, wiser than all the wise and good men who have lived before us. It was their wish to see public and private virtues, not dissonant and jarring, and mutually destructive, but harmoniously combined, growing out of one another, in a noble and orderly gradation, reciprocally supporting and supported. In one of the most fortunate periods of our history, this country was governed by a connection. I mean, the great connection of Whigs in the reign of Queen Anne. They were complimented upon the principle of this connection by a poet who was in high esteem with them. Addison, who knew their sentiments, could not praise them for what they considered as no proper subject of commendation. As a poet who knew his business, he could not applaud them for a thing which in general estimation was not highly reputable. Addressing himself to Britain, Thy favourites grow not up by fortune's sport, or from the crimes or follies of a court. On the firm basis of desert they rise, from long-tried faith and friendship's holy ties. The Whigs of those days believed that the only proper method of rising into power was through hard essays of practised friendship and experimented fidelity. 
At the time it was not imagined that patriotism was a bloody idol, which required the sacrifice of children and parents, or dearest connections in private life, and of all the virtues that rise from those relations. They were not of that ingenious paradoxical morality to imagine that a spirit of moderation was properly shown in patiently bearing the sufferings of your friends, or that disinterestedness was clearly manifested at the expense of other people's fortune. They believed that no men could act with effect who did not act in concert, that no men could act in concert who did not act with confidence, that no men could act with confidence who were not bound together by common opinions, common affections, and common interests. These wise men, for such I must call Lord Sunderland, Lord Godolphin, Lord Summers, and Lord Marlborough, were too well principled in these maxims upon which the whole fabric of public strength is built, to be blown off their ground by the breath of every childish talker. They were not afraid that they should be called an ambitious junto, or that their resolution to stand or fall together should by placemen be interpreted into a scuffle for places. Party is a body of men united for promoting by their joint endeavours the national interest upon some particular principle, in which they are all agreed. For my part, I find it impossible to conceive that any one believes in his own politics, or thinks them to be of any weight who refuses to adopt the means of having them reduced into practice. It is the business of the speculative philosopher to mark the proper ends of government. It is the business of the politician, who is the philosopher in action, to find out proper means towards those ends, and to employ them with effect. Therefore every honourable connection will avow it is their first purpose to pursue every just method to put the men who hold their opinions into such a condition as may enable them to carry their common plans into execution, with all the power and authority of the state. As this power is attached to certain situations, it is their duty to contend for these situations. Without a prescription of others, they are bound to give to their own party the preference in all things and by no means for private considerations to accept any offers of power in which the whole body is not included, nor to suffer themselves to be led or to be controlled or to be overbalanced in office or in council by those who contradict the very fundamental principles on which their party is formed, and even those upon which every fair connection must stand. Such a generous contention for power, on such manly and honourable maxims, will easily be distinguished from the mean and interested struggle for place and emolument. The very style of such persons will serve to discriminate them from those numberless impostors, who have deluded the ignorant with professions incompatible with human practice, and have afterwards incensed them by practices below the level of vulgar rectitude. It is an advantage to all narrow wisdom and narrow morals that their maxims have a plausible air, and on a cursory view appear equal to first principles. 
They are light and portable. They are as current as copper coin and about as valuable. They serve equally the first capacities and the lowest. And they are at least as useful to the worst men as to the best. Of this stamp is the cant of not men but measures. A sort of charm by which many people get loose from every honourable engagement. When I see a man acting this desultory and disconnected part, with as much detriment to his own fortune as prejudice to the cause of any party, I am not persuaded that he is right, but I am ready to believe he is in earnest. I respect virtue in all its situations, even when it is found in the unsuitable company of weakness. I lament to see qualities rare and valuable, squandered away without any public utility. But when a gentleman with great visible emoluments abandons the party in which he has long acted, and tells you it is because he proceeds upon his own judgment, that he acts on the merits of the several measures as they arise, and that he is obliged to follow his own conscience, and not that of others, he gives reasons which it is impossible to controvert, and discovers a character which it is impossible to mistake. What shall we think of him, who never differed from a certain set of men, until the moment they lost their power, and who never agreed with them in a single instance afterwards? Would not such a coincidence of interest and opinion be rather fortunate? Would it not be an extraordinary cast upon the dice? that a man's connections should degenerate into faction. Precisely at the critical moment when they lose their power or he accepts a place. When people desert their connections, the desertion is a manifest fact upon which a direct simple issue lies, triable by plain men. Whether a measure of government be right or wrong is no matter of fact, but a mere affair of opinion on which men may, as they do, dispute and wrangle without end. But whether the individual thinks the measure right or wrong is a point at still a greater distance from the reach of all human decision. It is therefore very convenient to politicians not to put the judgment of their conduct on overt acts, cognizable in any ordinary court, but upon such matter as can be triable only in that secret tribunal where they are sure of being heard with favour, or where at worst the sentence will be only private whipping. I believe the reader would wish to find no substance in a doctrine which has a tendency to destroy all test of character as deduced from conduct. He will therefore excuse my adding something more, towards the further clearing up a point, which the great convenience of obscurity to dishonesty has been able to cover with some degree of darkness and doubt. In order to throw an odium on political connection, those politicians suppose it a necessary incident to it, that you are blindly to follow the opinions of your party when in direct opposition to your own clear ideas. A degree of servitude that no worthy man could bear the thought of submitting to, and such as, I believe, no connections except some court factions, ever could be so senselessly tyrannical as to impose. Men thinking freely will, in particular instances, think differently. But still as the greater part of the measures, 
which arise in the course of public business are related to or dependent on some great leading general principles in government a man must be peculiarly unfortunate in the choice of his political company if he does not agree with them at least nine times in ten if he does not concur in these general principles upon which the party is founded and which necessarily draw on a concurrence in their application he ought from the beginning to have chosen some other more conformable to his opinions when the question is in its nature doubtful or not very material the modesty which becomes an individual and in spite of our court moralists that partiality which becomes a well-chosen friendship will frequently bring on an acquiescence in the general sentiment thus the disagreement will naturally be rare it will be only enough to indulge freedom without violating concord or disturbing arrangement and this is all that ever was required for a character of the greatest uniformity and steadiness in connection how men can proceed without any connection at all is to me utterly incomprehensible of what sort of materials must that man be made how must he be tempered and put together who can sit whole years in parliament with five hundred and fifty of his fellow-citizens amidst the storm of such tempestuous passions in the sharp conflict of so many wits and tempers and characters in the agitation of such mighty questions in the discussion of such vast and ponderous interests without seeing any one sort of men whose character conduct or disposition would lead him to associate himself with them to aid and be aided in any one system of public utility i remember an old scholastic aphorism which says that the man who lives wholly detached from others must be either an angel or a devil when i see in any of these detached gentlemen of our times the angelic purity power and beneficence i shall admit them to be angels in the meantime we are born only to be men we shall do enough if we form ourselves to be good ones it is therefore our business carefully to cultivate in our minds to rear to the most perfect vigour and maturity every sort of generous and honest feeling that belongs to our nature to bring the dispositions that are lovely in private life into the service and conduct of the commonwealth so to be patriots as not to forget we are gentlemen to cultivate friendships and to incur enmities to have both strong but both selected in the one to be placeable in the other immovable to model our principles to our duties and our situation to be fully persuaded that all virtue which is impracticable is spurious and rather to run the risk of falling into faults in a course which leads us to act with effect and energy than to loiter out our days without blame and without use public life is a situation of power and energy he trespasses against his duty who sleeps upon his watch as well as he that goes over to the enemy there is however a time for all things it is not every conjuncture which calls with equal force upon the activity of honest men but critical exigencies now and then arise and i am mistaken if this be not one of them 
men will see the necessity of honest combination but they may see it when it is too late they may embody when it will be ruinous to themselves and of no advantage to the country when for want of such a timely union as may enable them to oppose in favour of the laws with the laws on their side they may at length find themselves under the necessity of conspiring instead of consulting the law for which they stand may become a weapon in the hands of its bitterest enemies and they will be cast at length into that miserable alternative between slavery and civil confusion which no good man can look upon without horror an alternative in which it is impossible he should take either part with a conscience perfectly at repose to keep that situation of guilt and remorse at the utmost distance is therefore our first obligation early activity may prevent late and fruitless violence as yet we work in the light the scheme of the enemies of public tranquillity have disarranged it has not destroyed us if the reader believes that there really exists such a faction as i have described a faction ruling by the private inclinations of a court against the general sense of the people and that this faction whilst it pursues a scheme for undermining all the foundations of our freedom weakens for the present at least all the powers of executory government rendering us abroad contemptible and at home distracted he will believe also that nothing but a firm combination of public men against this body and that too supported by the hearty concurrence of the people at large can possibly get the better of it the people will see the necessity of restoring public men to an attention to the public opinion and of restoring the constitution to its original principles above all they will endeavour to keep the house of commons from assuming a character which does not belong to it they will endeavour to keep that house for its existence for its powers and its privileges as independent of every other and as dependent upon themselves as possible this servitude is to a house of commons like obedience to the divine law perfect freedom for if they once quit this natural rational and liberal obedience having deserted the only proper foundation of their power they must seek a support in an abject and unnatural dependence somewhere else when through the medium of this just connection with their constituents the genuine dignity of the house of commons is restored it will begin to think of casting from it with scorn as badges of civility all the false ornaments of illegal power with which it has been for some time disgraced it will begin to think of its old office of control it will not suffer that last of evils to predominate in the country men without popular confidence public opinion natural connection or mutual trust invested with all the powers of government when they have learned this lesson themselves they will be willing and able to teach the court that it is the true interest of the prince to have but one administration and that one composed of those who recommend themselves to their sovereign through the opinion of their country and not by their obsequiousness to a favourite 
such men will serve their sovereign with affection and fidelity because his choice of them upon such principles is a compliment to their virtue they will be able to serve him effectually because they will add the weight of the country to the force of the executory power they will be able to serve their king with dignity because they will never abuse his name to the gratification of their private spleen or avarice this with allowances for human frailty may probably be the general character of a ministry which thinks itself accountable to the house of commons when the house of commons thinks itself accountable to its constituents if other ideas should prevail things must remain in their present confusion until they are hurried into all the rage of civil violence or until they sink into the dead repose of despotism end of section 33 end of the works of the right honourable edmund burke volume 1 by edmund burke